0: Okay, and welcome back to another episode of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 81, and today I'm very pleased to bring to you Dr. Greg Half. Hi, Greg. Hi, Laura. Right.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: No, it's, it, it's a pleasure. I've been wanting to get you uh, on this podcast for some time, actually. I know I haven't uh, contacted you before. Um, I've, I've had so many different... Topics to get into um, over this past couple of years, and it's it's uh, it's like anything I think in in sort of sports sciences, strength and conditioning. There are so many different areas one can get into. It um, it sort of blows me away just how many um, how many different areas I've ended up going. And um, the one I wanted to touch upon today with you was. Um, loosely uh, will be related to periodization and of course you're well known um, for your work in periodization um, uh, particularly in strength and conditioning. Um, Of course you um, helped co-author the the really well-known text uh, that many of us have have read and used um, um, on strength and conditioning by yourself and Tudor Bomper. But for those that... um, haven't uh, maybe uh, heard of you or aren't quite sure, um, then perhaps you could give us an overview as to who you are and and what you're up to. Uh,
1: Well, my background is really I started as an athlete in the sport of weightlifting and athletics. Um, I did my master's degree under Mike Stone, which is a great learning experience as far as having one of the best in the world as your mentor. but. What made it even more interesting is that uh, he was also my weightlifting coach at the time, so that um, I was getting real hands-on kind of experiences and scientific experiences. Uh, during that same time, I kind of worked with Meg Stone as a, as a graduate assistant strength coach. so I had some strength coaching experience. So for me, my foundation has actually been more from the coaching perspective. I actually never really intended to become a scientist or an academic. I wanted to be a coach. So... After I got my PhD, I actually took over Mike Stone's lab for a little while, and I've kind of meandered my way around the world in different, unique uh, experiences, and I'm currently now the course coordinator for the postgraduate degree in strength conditioning at Edith Cowan University, and I head up a research group that really looks at unique, applied topics. Uh, Currently, we're working on things related to velocity-based training. Um, We're doing things with cluster sets. We've got some periodization studies going. Um, we've looked at strength training in, in children, uh, we're really getting into accentuated eccentric loading models at the moment, and then we're going to be looking at some stuff with cross-transfer effect training. Um, so we've got a whole bunch of different things going, but I think our underlying key principle is that uh, the research that we do has to have some meaningful impact on sports performance so if I, I can collect a lot of mechanism studies, but it may not mean anything to the guys and the gals that are actually working with athletes to achieve their dreams. Yeah. So we, we always try to make sure that we have that connection to to the real world or the or you know the coal face as they might say where the coaches are actually coaching. Yeah, um, that's, so that that's kind of me um, in, in a nutshell. Um, I'm still an active uh, weightlifter. I still compete. I still train regularly i kind of mandate that my students train with me much like mike stone did when i was a young grad student um so to me you know being in the weight room is important as investigating the weight room so um i hope that answers your question yeah no
0: it, it does i i think um folks that listen to this now for um well as i said this is episode 81 so there's been quite a few episodes sort of the focus of my podcast is to discuss um, science um, usually it's uh, sports science um, and it's sub disciplines uh, within physiology so that's usually either performance nutrition or strengthening strength and conditioning sort of things um, but the, the 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 key to this podcast has always been the need to ensure context and um, is discussed and that can often be an issue, particularly as you mentioned there, um, mechanistic studies. Um, these are the things that that of course we read, it helps inform um, our yeah. practice, but it isn't necessarily um, what we should base our practice or our recommendations off. And a lot of things get lost in translation and that's one of the things that I hope to achieve with this podcast is discussing it with the scientists like yourself um mm-hmm. but who are also pra- uh, practitioners and by practitioners in your case you're not just uh coaching or um advising you also do this yourself and have done it yourself and and i think that that brings um, a special angle to these conversations because as you know a lot of times people discuss science um but it's got no real bearing on reality and or it's not pragmatic in any way um oh. Now, of course, uh, a lot of the listeners will certainly have been confused by the accents going on here. (laughs) Um, I've got people listening all over the world, but every now and then I get quite a few emails, which is great um, relating to the guests and how great they've been. Um, But one thing is always, you know, I'm always being told I've always got Brits or Americans on here. And I want to (laughs) stress... Although you may hail from the US originally, right? You, um, as you mentioned there, you're you're based in Australia. Um, what we refer to in the UK as being down under, of course. Um, but let's let's maybe kick some of this off first by maybe a quick discussion on how a lot of this stuff, science, uh, whether it's strength and conditioning, sports and nutrition, or whatever, tends to vary a bit from country to country. Because I think. Sometimes when you're when you're in your own country, you, you attend your own conferences, you read your, you know, your your textbooks or your papers that tend to come from your country because it's in your language, amongst mm-hmm. other things there there sometimes isn't an appreciation for the science that's coming out of other countries. And um, there is fantastic science coming from around the globe. How have you felt that um, f- felt about that yourself, given that you've traveled around a bit?
1: Um, I, what I think one of the things I would say for sports science students or academics or even scientists, the opportunity to work in other countries is a fascinating one that actually, to me, is a growth experience. I've actually changed dramatically in some of my thought processes uh, moving to Australia. But for me, um, it's kind of interesting the difference, differences in belief systems about strength and conditioning. Mm. Um, I live in Western Australia, and it's almost strength-phobic over here, which is really unique. Um, they're very conditioning-oriented, uh, which is interesting. And the people I've met, so that's a, it's not a – I don't mean to generalize to everybody in Western Australia, but a lot of people I've met, they're more about speed and, and conditioning and stuff like that. Um, coming from Mike Stone's group where it's all about strength, you know, strength is, like, really important. Like, it's the end-all, be-all in some ways. Um, and, you know, and, and having my own belief system that strength is a, is a primary biomotor ability that underpins a lot of things, that's been an interesting uh, – experience for me because uh, i learning new things about conditioning like uh, for example I had the opportunity to do some things with Martin Boucher who I think is an amazing scientist and practitioner and, and learning from him different intermittent fitness kind of things that wouldn't have been uh, exposed uh, to in the United States. We don't really talk about it. I've been pushing the NSCA quite hard to bring Martin into our conference structure so that our coaches can experience Uh, some of his knowledge and his experiences uh, with handball but adapted to our sports Um, actually to be honest my favorite conference in the world is actually the UK SCA I actually enjoy that one uh, probably the most Um, I I try to get there as much as I can Um, I'm going again this year uh, in 2016 and I'm going to spend a little bit of time uh, with English Institute of Sport afterwards and I always find that to be an an experience that uh, challenges my beliefs but also um, it's an information exchange, and I, I like that idea of exchanging information from coaches around the world, um, and it's interesting how similarities actually do come out with what certain groups believe or certain um, cohorts of scientists come to believe. Mm-hmm. So those are experiences, I think, really can expand your knowledge and make you either uh, believe more in what you think you know is right or question your own belief system and drive your science to kind of go question yourself. Um, I think that's a
0: strong thing to do. Absolutely, and you know, I, I think a lot of people are guilty of surrounding themselves with you know, the the people that they want to hear from and don't expose themselves to other people's opinions or knowledge enough, and um, one of the challenges of being a smaller country, if you can call the UK a small country, I know we're small in terms of land mass, but we're quite heavily populated, but when you compare us to the likes of the US, um China Russia, and so on we you know we we are a very small country, but we do gain significant medals at events like the olympics and so on and and um i i you know i'm aware that one of the reasons why that will be the case is because we you know we we have put a lot of time and effort into not just the science um of of sports science um but also coaching how to actually coach, and we of course have you know degree programs over here um on coaching science like football coaching for example it's it's you know quite a big growth area and the recognition that it's not just about conditioning um there's a, there's psychology there's there's all sorts of things that that go on and um we've explored these concepts quite often on this this podcast about how um for example we we can sometimes overscience things um oh, I, I, yeah, so I mean, I, 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 um, Marco Cardinali, if you know um, of him, uh, we, we did a great session on over How do you feel about the whole over idea?
1: You're actually, uh, that's been my, my mantra right now. I think uh, the standing joke, my wife is an elite coach. Uh, she coaches the Australian uh, national youth team that travels and competes at the Worlds and stuff. And it seems as if coaches now are looking for a computer to be the coach and they're just supposed to ask the computer what to do. Mm. And it's kind of interesting to me because I think we're losing the art of coaching or the soft science of actually looking at an athlete and, and being able to to know them well enough to know whether or not they really are under stress or or not under stress. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I, I think that's an important thing. That Sometimes all the gimmicks and gadgets that we stack onto the body to try to measure things, maybe give us some, you know, wrong information, um, and how we interpret it may send us down the wrong path. So, you know, we're very interested in, in, in looking at, you know, is there too much science going on as far as monitoring and and um, trying to drive training based on almost like a robotic kind of input output response, mm. when really the human being is capable of doing amazing things. On belief, And so the sports psychology, the nutrition, all those things are, are integrated into this complex system uh, that is the athlete that we work with. So for me, um, I generally go with the belief that the monitoring and the science we do informs training. It doesn't dictate training. Yeah. Still, as a coach, have to make logical, sound decisions. And sometimes it's time to push really, really hard, even though those metrics say that we shouldn't. Um, because we have to build tolerance Um, for example one of the questions that we we often use uh, in some of our practicum experiences here at the County, we had one of the opals uh, you know silver medal winner at the 2012 games and i asked her i said you know what if your wellness readiness scale the morning of the game um, says you're not ready to play what do we do and you know we had this great discussion about you can't move the olympics so why are we not training on days when we're not feeling good Um, And she was like, you know, you got to put your big girl pants on and go play. And that's a really great statement for me, because sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. Obviously, we don't want to put athletes in risk of injury, but sometimes in competition, you know, we may not be right, but we still have to perform. So when do we practice it if we always are taking the athlete out of training to make sure that they're optimized?
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I uh, I mean, you're mirroring so many of the things that I and other guests have, have mentioned, and Um, I work in elite sport myself. And I have to say that one thing that does frustrate me, particularly when one, you know, sees things on social media or uh, sees research coming out um, that might be perfectly decent research, but um, without understanding the context in which that research was performed, i.e., you know, not elite athletes, um, you know, it it is something that I think is a problem. And like I said at the beginning, that's kind of the point of this podcast. Um, So look, as a bit of a segue then um, into the sort of the main topic I wanted to get into, which was um, um, periodization. Um, I actually did cover periodization theory and application with uh, Dr. Anthony Turner, who's my Colleague Mm -hmm. at um Middlesex University where um I'm also based. Um that was episode 61, folks, for those those of you that are listening. Um but I wanted to come back to this because again, lately periodization has come under attack, so to speak, um, -hmm. on on social media and you know there's been some things written and and so on. And, um, you know, the purpose of this podcast isn't a platform to handle arguments and various other things. But what I do want to do is have a proper discussion about this. And, and you're the man I felt um, to bring this to. So um, maybe we, we could first start off doing something that I think other a lot of people don't do often enough. And that is actually uh, uh, create some definitions here. Could Could you actually define what we actually mean by periodization.
1: Well, I think first you have to contextualize what periodization is before mm. you can really come up with a definition. Even better, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's where we get into trouble. And some of the papers and um, blogs and, and, and social media postings that suggest, for example, that periodization is dead and we shouldn't go forward with it anymore, really have a fundamental misunderstanding, I believe, uh, in what periodization actually is. And periodization to me is, is a two-part phenomenon. It's a planning structure, but it's also a programming structure. And a lot of the attack that we see on periodization is targeting the programming structure, not the planning structure. Mm. So if we think about this, you know if I work in the English Premier League, the English Premier League gives me the schedule that I have to compete in. I must plan training around that schedule. I can't change the schedule. It's dictated by the league. So I have to then come up with programming structures that underpin or drive the athlete to the planned goals that are dictated by the competitive season, off offseason, etc. So to me, periodization encompasses those two things. And I think that's where we first start with our problem with the misunderstanding of periodization. Because if you look at the research, most of the research on periodization is programming research unifactorial programming research and that's where we, I think we get into a little bit of problems because we as athletes don't only train one factor if I'm a, a ball sport athlete I have multiple factors that I have to train at different times or in different ways to get to where I want to be. Obviously in sports like weightlifting they're a little bit more unifactoral but I could make the argument that weightlifting in and of itself is not unifactoral just based on how we train so for me periodization is a logical, systematic integration and sequencing of training factors to some determined goal. Um, And there's many different ways that you could sequence training or integrate training depending on your outcomes. But I think we have to have logic, and I think that's where science comes in, to give us information to inform our decision about periodization. And this is where some of the cell signaling research can be important. This is where some of the um, interactions with coaches can become important because I may say in cell signaling this is going to cause this great response. And, but then a coach would say, yeah, but nobody trains the way that that study was done. Yeah. So we still have to have logic in how we interpret the research and make our informed decision. So for me, periodization is a programming and planning structure. And we have had logic in how we develop those programming structures. So,
0: Greg, do you, do you also feel that, um, since you've mentioned the word robot before, I, I, I do see this being a problem where people robotically implement what they've read into practice without any sort of due consideration mm-hmm. for the environment. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, again, I think, I mean, I use the word context all the time and, you know, I guess mm-hmm. we could say it depends. There's all sorts of things. But I like to to try and explain that a lot of this stuff that we learn or read is a tool in a toolbox. You still need to know, you know, when mm-hmm. to use that tool. But also, like in that real world analogy of a sort of, a you know, toolbox in a do-it-yourself sort of mm-hmm. scenario, there's also different ways of skinning a cat so to speak and maybe people shouldn't be quite so obsessed and extreme about how they use these tools
1: Mm -hmm. i would agree i mean to me you know you know right now my weightlifting team is actually training and my wife is coaching them and um and there's 15 different people in there with 15 different periodization type structures that are being implemented based on their needs and their specific goals. And we have, you know, one girl who went to Houston in the world championships, and we have one person who's just started training. So there's different contextual points that you have to think about. What works for the very elite athlete may not work for the very novice athlete. And I think that's where it gets a little bit confusing as well, because uh, people kind of have this mentality that the the doctrine of periodization is like Moses with the tablets. It's like engraved in stone, and you're just going to implement it. As almost like a cookbook, and and the reality, if you really read the periodization literature, and I actually spent a whole host of time reading the original stuff, mm. the actual translations of Matveyev and Nadoré and Verkoshansky and all the original stuff that was done, the reality is that periodization is supposed to have variability and also have a coaching ethos underneath it. So it's not like you're just going to do something to do it in a sequence because that's this robotic sequence. It goes on the needs of the athlete and the rate of progression of the athlete and where they are within their developmental status. If you read almost all the original texts, they talk about you know athlete development status. Different levels require different things and different people progress through different levels at different rates. So the genetics can actually play a role in this as well. Mm. So for me, um, there are many ways to, to train different people. I could bring in 15... Elite strength coaches who do it very differently, but are very successful. But if you peel back what they're doing, there's some basic concepts that are are pretty much universal, um, in my opinion. Yeah, and that
0: that was the key that that I wanted to get into with you was, you know, we don't need to get into all the different sort of theories of periodization. I covered a lot of that with Anthony Turner anyway, and of course they can just read. The various books and papers that exist out there what, what i wanted to do is sort of unpack this evidence a bit into an applied context so that people can understand what the point of this is and and like we say don't be robotic about it but appreciate that you know your sort of your own way of using these tools in the workplace still has a value and i guess we should explore why there's a value particularly to periodization i mean why bother with periodization, I guess, is the first question.
1: Well, I think, you know, know, I think, um, you know, if you use the old analogy, the failure to plan is the plan to fail. I mean, that to me is part of the the, the conundrum. Uh, We also know that if, for example, and you work at a university or or affiliated with a university, if you go to any recreation center at any university and you watch people strength train, they'll do the same things every time they go in with the same loads in the same ways. Um, human nature is to just do the things that you're good at and not the things that you're not good at. So, to me, we have to plan to improve. We've got to plan about strengths and weaknesses. Monitoring, testing give us information about what we need to target in our athletes' development. And, you know, some athletes may need more power training, some need more strength, but there's always some almost like recipe that's specific to them. So, to me, Periodization is a framework from which we're going to train the athlete. It's a skeleton from which we will build our programming interventions. You know, I used the analogy before of a season. Um, you know, we with team sports, your league, your conference are going to dictate when you have your competitive engagements. I think that's something that you have to, to, to put down as uh, a key point. Individual sports... You know, rightly so, are probably easier because you can, at the elite level, pick when you're going to compete. Mm. You can say, I'm going to only compete three or four times a year at these very distinct points. I can be very systematic in how I get to those points. But when I'm in a team sport where every week has some meaning to it, my strategies become slightly different. And and the different models of periodization that are out there or applications of periodization can address those, depending on the athletes that, that you're working with and the level of athlete that you're working with. Um, So for me, why do I periodize? Because I need a planning structure to work from. That planning structure, uh, the global Google Earth view, so to speak, is somewhat structured around the competitive season. um, and probably is is dictated more by that as I dial down into the more um, finite levels of the periodization model. Then I can have more plasticity to make changes. Um, a great analogy is an athlete. Let's say that I want to build leg strength in a certain phase. Mm. You know, I like I like squatting. I think squatting is a key activity, and I, I think Hagen Hartman's work really shows that it is, and Mike Stone's classic work as well. But not every athlete can squat. You know, my rugby uh, player may have a back injury that prevents them from squatting. Well, what can I do to still develop leg leg strength? So that athlete may have something different. Um, a leg press or a pitch shark or something like that to build lower body strength. The overall goal is to build lower body strength. My ideal is the squat, but not everybody can do it. So I make changes. Or that player gets hurt this weekend in a, in, a, in a scrum. So then I change the structure of the training to still get leg strength. So I think that's where we have some plasticity. So for me, periodization is the overbridging planning structure that I'm going to implement my programming structures under
0: sure and i, I you know and i guess we we do need to be holistic in some ways in how we look at periodization um as applied to a human and not a robot of course which you know needs to take into account things like boredom um that you know for me my my main focus actually is performance nutrition and <clears throat> you know when, when an athlete gets bored that can have a serious impact um on their nutrition which can affect body composition and health and all sorts of things so i have certainly found that periodization um you know nutritional periodization uh, uh certainly can have some some great work we've actually covered this in previous podcasts but i i guess one topic that we get into when we talk about periodization is is um th- this this business of dealing with fatigue isn't it um mm-hmm. and you raised you mentioned stress before which is sort of an underlying issue mm-hmm. throughout all of this um i mean what you know what is the relevance of of stress i think we should go back to stress first maybe i mean why why, why you know because stress is something that there's training stress there's life stress there's all mm-hmm. kinds of stresses um what mm-hmm. you know why why is stress something that we might be thinking about
1: well if what we're if, if we Step back for a second, mm. you know, I think there's a false impression that stress is a bad thing mm. all the time. Sometimes stress is a good thing because it makes things stronger or more robust. Robust to get better physically you have to be under some degree of stress. What the problem becomes is if that stress overwhelms the system's ability to adapt to that stress. And if we you know agree that stressors are additive, um, you know, your life stress is going to confound your training stress and there's this idea of integrating things amongst your life and that's where I think monitoring plays a role. Um, I'm also really very interested in periodization of nutrition right now because I think um, with some of the evidence that's coming out with different physiological responses and, and outcomes from modifications in diet and how we can manipulate diet to either enhance adaptation or speed recovery can be quite powerful in helping that athlete um, manage their stressors. So the idea would be then that periodization would allow us to make some management structure underneath to modulate the athlete's response to stress. Where it gets difficult, I think, is that athletes uh, respond differently to stress because we as coaches only control a very small component of their lives. And that's problematic in the sense that you know for example some of my athletes um, i know they don't eat well and they tend to get hurt more often because they don't eat well they may not rest enough but they don't tell me they don't rest enough so as a coach i have to make decisions on the fly sometimes you know you don't look right today pull back and that's still going to be enough training stress potentially but i like tim Gabbitt's recent paper that talks about you know Is reducing stress always the answer or is it sometimes we have to get into that sweet spot where stress is at a high enough level that we get adaptation so that the athlete becomes more robust? So for me, I think I kind of think of periodization as a stress management system. Now, I've had athletes that are rapid responders to training and rapid responders to detraining, So they can handle more training stress more frequently because they just have that physiology I have others that can handle a lot of stress. Um, they tend to break very quickly. And I think that has a lot to do with what goes on outside their lives, um, between diet, social stress. I think that's why a lot of uh, success that you see now in some sporting worlds, um, they use residence centers where they live, and they don't have to worry about housing and cooking and things of that nature to remove stressors. Yeah. Um, and I think those kind of things can converge to kind of dictate training outcomes.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I... – One thing that I find um, that people suffer from, shall we say, is um, that they sort of subscribe to a um, sort of dualistic uh, approach to things. And by that, I mean, uh, by dualism, I mean, you know, the either or sort of concept, you know, it's black and white. It's, you know, carbs are good or carbs are bad or... Um, you know, uh, it's all it's all about squats and deadlifts, or it's all about kettlebells, or you know, there, there, there yeah. isn't really an appreciation for that. There is no good or bad; it's just a question of good timing or bad timing, really. Um, I mean, what do you feel about that?
1: I would agree. I mean, I think the thing is that I believe that you should have a, a philosophical center of, mm. about what you believe is 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 important, and I think from there you build out different modifications around that center. Now, from for me, from a periodization perspective, I, I tend to look at things uh, from a planning structure. I think about fatigue management. I think about monitoring to inform decisions I might make as a coach underneath those structures. But one of the things I'm, I'm kind of struggling with at the moment is that I find a lot of modern athletes that I work with want to feel perfect and fresh all the time. Hmm. And sometimes you're not meant to feel perfect and fresh because you just had a big training load and you're in a recovery week. You're probably not going to feel great. Why? Because your body's going through the adaptations that it needs to go through to make physiological changes. And we know from Carl Foster's work and several other good uh, studies that um, are out there that We still train just at a lower load. Where I get kind of frustrated is if someone's not right, some people will send them home to recover. Mm. Well, then you're getting detraining effects. We know that lower load training and managing the training load can improve performance adaptation and you will recover faster. So I think that for me kind of underpins some of that.
0: Yeah, I I think I mean you know again if if we're to sort of go back to this sort of either or idea, like for example, period, periodization is a good idea or it's worthless or dead, as as yeah. has been said, is you know if you look beyond that sort of either or type idea, um, so for example, if 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 we are going to consider someone wants to to get bigger muscles, for example, to be stronger, um, the question is 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 uh, can they? Um, Well, yes, they can, but should they um, take that approach is another question? So, for example, with an athlete who needs to perform, they don't just need to look great on stage, for example. They also need to um, win a rugby game or, uh, you know, perform on a Saturday or perform every four years for the Olympics becomes a different concept, really, doesn't it? Yeah, it
1: really does. And I think that's one of the problems, I think, in the periodization literature. It really... Um, frustrated sometimes when I read some of the literature that's been done on supposed periodization studies, because there's this either-or approach in the sense that that to design a really good scientific study, you've got to control a lot of things. So, for example, um, you might do a training study where you want to equalize the training loads, and everybody's going to train to failure. Well, training to failure may actually cause problems in the periodization structure, because Fundamentally, no matter what the load is, you're always going to maximum. So then you've taken a layer out of the periodization paradigm, which is variation of training load, because the intensity is maximum. So that could be problematic. And one of the studies that we did, uh, Mike Stone and I, uh, a guy named Painter, one of our grad students, was was a periodization study in actual athletics athletes where we compared daily undulating periodization with a block periodization model. And if you read the paper... At the end, it was there was no difference between the two programming models. And so people jumped on that and said, see, it doesn't matter what periodization you use. But what they failed to look at was the fact that the training group that did block periodization did significantly less training load, had significantly less injuries to get to the same place as beating yourself up in the daily undulating model. Mm. So again, again, that either or, you know, it's this model or this model, I get there to the same place, but how did I get there and what state did I get there in? And what was interesting is our study actually had other training factors involved. It wasn't just going to the weight room and training three days a week, it was also throwing practice, sprinting practice, jumping practice, all the things that an athletics or track and field athlete would do. And I think that's where the periodization literature sometimes falls down, because especially in the strength training sphere, because all we look at is the strength training. Well, As you rightly said, stressors impact things. So athletes don't just strength train. They do a whole host of other things that have to be thought about about how they interact with that strength training to get from A to B. So maybe a model where you train to failure every day gets you to point B. But what is the status of your your physical wellness or performance capacity at that point? So for me... You know, there's a lot of different ways to train, and there's a lot of different ways to implement periodization. But ultimately, every training structure has some sort of planning underpinning. You know, you know what day you have to train, you know what day you can't train. Um, all those different things can impact the outcome.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, one problem um, people have. I, I, when I started out in this area, I, I certainly suffered from this myself. Um, and I know a lot of folks will have will resonate with this. One of the issues c- can be when you're reading up on this stuff, depending on how well educated you are yourself and how how much you interrogate the evidence and your ability to interrogate that evidence. And by that, I mean, differentiate quality from flawed science, whatever that means um, gets yeah. a bit tricky because th- there's a lot of stuff out there um, you know, uh, being published does not mean that it's good. Um, I, I hope that's not a shock to any of the listeners. But, you know, it, it's very difficult um, to get quality um, articles out there. You know, the, 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 there might be a peer review process, but who peer reviewed the peer reviewer? <laughs> um, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that's going on out there. And, and um, that leaves, you know, us as as coaches, trainers... Um, who yeah. don't necessarily work in the ivory towers of academia and may not know all this stuff um, are confronted with information. Um, do you? I mean, I don't know if you're going to have an answer to this, but you know, for for for, for the for the soldiers in the trenches um, who don't have time to do PhDs or or whatever. You know, what what do you think um, they should be should be knowing about this in terms of tackling all this information? As it as it relates to informing their practice. That's
1: like a very very difficult question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, 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 it's actually something you know. I've, I said it to one of my grad students recently. I said I, I would I would be very um, for me. I, I feel for them because if I was their age right now, who do you believe? Who do you listen to? Um, there's so much information on the internet that it's hard to differentiate what's real and what's not and and it's interesting how people interpret science and and, and how they try to extrapolate to different things you know you could do a training study with older adults and, and find one thing you know we just did a periodization study over 22 weeks in older adults and found no periodization was just as good but they were 70 year olds who had never strength trained um and everybody trained to failure because that's what we had to do for the clinical model. So would I extrapolate that to an elite athlete? No, but someone might bury that in a meta-analysis to say that see, it doesn't matter how you train, you get muscle hypertrophy and strength gains. So I think that's problematic. So I think you have to. I think my rule of thumb one is that I think all strength coaches need to have some sort of knowledge about what good research design is. I mean, as you know, basic stuff you know, control groups versus non-control groups, Um, different, uh, what population is being studied. You know, if it's an untrained person, I think, you know, Mike Stone used to say, with an untrained person, you probably could beat them with a stick and they'll get stronger. So is that really going to be the same as my elite world-class athlete who's got a huge training age and needs more training variation in order to get better? So for me, understanding a basic design of what research is, and there's many good research texts out there on what good research is in sports science, understanding what, um, what, part- you know, what differentiates different par- participants, knowing how to look at a paper and read it and go, okay, this is all untrained people. Okay, what do I know as a coach when I bring someone in that's never been trained before? Pretty much I'm a genius for the first year until it gets a little bit more difficult. Uh, with their print training structures. Um, I'm a big fan of conferences. I think it's important to go talk to people. And one thing I know about scientists is we like to talk to people. I I enjoy talking to young scientists or coaches or anybody when I go to different conferences. And I think the issue I I struggle with lately is um, the guru. uh, Not per se guru meaning (laughs) podcast, but what I mean, like the self-proclaimed guru that has – you know, a huge social media following who suggests that, you know, I know all these things and just follow me to the promised land. And um, I'm more cynical in the sense that I, I, I want to ask questions and ask the hard questions. And I do that of myself frequently to challenge my own belief systems. And I, I I like to be challenged because I think you have to challenge yourself. But I think fundamentally as a strength coach, you have to be inquisitive, ask questions and, and trust Uh, your experiences. I think that's important. Um, I learned a lot more from Mike Stone in the weight room than I ever did in any classroom.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, It was an interesting experience for me. And and my grad student, Laurent Seitz, who's now based in France, uh, he trained with me for three years every morning at 6 a.m. So we'd talk about science and we'd do science, but then we'd go try science. You know, how does it feel to do a potentiation complex? Um, How does it feel to do a cluster set? Um, What does it measure, but how does it feel? And Mike Stone used to always tell us as students that if you are gonna give something to somebody, you better be willing to do it yourself. So for me, I often pilot a lot of the research we do. I participate as as a pilot subject just to see what it feels like or to experience it. And I think that's important. Because then I can contextualize it to my own athletic experiences and my own coaching experiences, and understand the science a little bit that underpins it as well from the literature that we read or the literature we create.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, uh, I mean, just joking aside, uh, um, I, I sort of always reel when I hear the word guru. And my oh god, of all the names I chose to call my company, <laughs> but of course, in different countries, it has a different. Uh, uh, yeah. A different perspective, but um, I mean, I, it's interesting you say this because the whole focus of my uh, doctoral research actually is um, yeah. in the application of um, sports science, uh, particularly in my scenario, exercise physiology and performance nutrition. And, um, yeah. you know, being a practitioner, uh, being um, an expert or beyond being an expert, actually mastery of expertise, which is a different different thing than just being an expert, um, is very interesting. And, and my own conclusions um, are very much that, you know, it's the uh, uh, well, basically that knowledge and context are evoked within practice um, mm. and that knowledge and context are artifacts generated within practice, um, which means that essentially we learn an awful lot by doing um, mm-hmm. and that 's one of the problems I think is that a lot of a lot of people do science, but they 're not applying the science in the real world therefore they 're not really learning um, mm-hmm. how how that science um, actually works as it's as it's you know as it 's supposed to be informing the very people that are wanting to use it you know how do we actually know um how these things work and you mentioned earlier actually about um you know, the, the, the rocket science is all very exciting, but in reality, the athlete's going to say, I'm just not going to do that. Um, <laughs> I've had that so many times in in a, in team settings or applied settings. Things like uh, um, my athletes won't take a certain sports drink because they don't like the look of it. Um, oh. th- there's a lot of things that we miss in the application of this, but of course, there's there's a lot more that, that we... Uh, sort of you know this idea of tacit knowledge, I guess that you know we we know how to ride a bicycle, but you try writing that down that's <laughs> a cool. damn difficult thing, and that definitely goes for strength uh, uh, con- uh strength and conditioning coaching doesn't it
1: oh absolutely I think so i I mean one of the things that I think is really important is that um as a coach and a strength and conditioning coach is to know how to do things like um one of the things that, you know, for me, you know, I, I was a competitive weightlifter. I'm a competitive weightlifter. I can do weightlifting. Um, even at my older age now, I can still be, I'm still competent as, a, I mean, not as strong as I was 20 years ago, but I'm still competent as a lifter. And, and when I do lift, you can see that I, I, I have ability. Um, I can still change and di- change direction like I did when I played gridiron. But that's because those skills are still part of what I practice. So practicing what you preach is, is an important thing to me, um, and, and it's actually a mantra that my wife and I have a, a, as a coaching philosophy, I believe. So one of the things that I think is important, too, is that uh, you kind of touched on it, is that this idea that um, we can kind of move through different uh, states at different times, and but not every athlete is going to stay in that, that sphere, Um, You know, know, some athletes just aren't going to do what we want them to do, and the science may say it's wonderful, but it may not work. Mm. I mean, I had wonderful debates with some of my colleagues here at ECU because uh, sometimes they're more mechanistic and more laboratory-based, and I'm like, well, if all I ever do is jump squat, I can tell you from my strength training experience, I'm going to lose strength. Mm. I'm going to get good at jump squatting, but I'm going to lose high-end strength, and I know. When I lose high-end strength, I tend to get injured more as, a, as, a, as a, uh, a football player, a gridiron player. So I think those kind of things to contextualize is always important. And I think in our program here at ECU, we spend a lot of time trying to get students to contextualize things to the real world. You know, this is a great paper, but what does it mean? And how does it relate to the real world? I think one of the most fascinating debates right now in sports science is this, Hormone, acute hormonal response versus non-acute hormonal response to resistance training yeah. uh, um, you know, do we design a training program to cause an acute hormonal response or do we not care about that and what a wonderful discussion and debate between the groups that are in each camp and again it's that yes or no kind of mentality um, is there a time and place to have very short rest intervals in your strength training program probably is there a time to have longer rest intervals probably but you know,
0: I know as an athlete, if I always go short rest intervals, I don't gain as much strength. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's back to the whole dualism thing, isn't it? Either or, like you say. Um, actually, on the hormone thing, I did a, a fascinating podcast with um, Professor Stu Phillips. I uh, yep. can't remember the number now, but it's called the Hormone H- Hypothesis for listeners. Um, very, yep. very interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah i mean you know again i think as as practitioner researchers as scientists there's all this evidence out there uh, um you can read a lot of stuff um but i guess what you're saying is you you know you need to read it you need to understand the mechanistic stuff uh you need you need to know the pros and cons what the debates are but ultimately you need to start trying this stuff out um and make up your own mind um is that kind of what you're saying
1: yeah, I think so. I mean, but see, the thing is, for me, and, and this is an important one, I don't think we want to have little, you know, Stu Phillips clones or Mike Stone clones or Greg Hoff clones or Dan Baker clones. Yeah, we we want free thinkers that actually take from different places and forge their own paths. One of my favorite quotes from Dan Baker is a good friend of mine, and I and I've gotten to know him quite well since I came to Australia, and it's been a really rewarding. Experiences, he he always tells me this, he's like, novice coaches copy, experienced coaches modify, great coaches innovate. And I I like that kind of synergy, um, because as we become more established, we can uh, apply more of our experience to our understanding of the science and how we're going to interpret it and use it. And I think that as a coaching uh, philosophy is kind of important. Uh, from a periodization perspective, I think that journey is very interesting. I know when I was a young strength coach, it was very dogmatic in the stone kind of sphere. Mm. You know, this is what you do, <laughs> boom, 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 boom. And over the years, I've, I've changed a little bit, and, and I'm always changing and understanding periodization in new ways. And I read everything I can get my hands on on periodization to make my own decisions. Um, and I compare and contrast it to my understanding of the physiology. I really think, for me, what differentiates really good, knowledgeable practitioners or coaches is understanding how the system works or how the system responds to stress or, or how the, that complex system of the human being operates physiologically. The best analogy I can give you is – I ask this in my classes a lot. How many people can drive a car? And most people's hands go up. And then I I follow that question with, can you take the engine out of my car and redo the the seals on the pistons? And they look at me like I'm a a space alien. And I'm like, well, you can drive a car. Why can't you do this?
0: Mm.
1: And they they get very perplexed. And I'm, I'm like, well, don't you understand how the car works? And they're like, well, you drive it. But how does it work? I think that's the problem that we often face in coaching. We understand the game, but we don't understand how the athlete responds to training and how they need to be prepared from a physiological perspective. And, and more recently, I've become more interested in the psychological perspective. You know, what You know what makes a great athlete? I, I had a great opportunity to work with the Australian National Weightlifting Program at a training camp with one of the Chinese coaches and, and the great coach from Australia, Lynn Jones. And I said to Lynn and and Coach Ma, I said, what makes a great weightlifter? And they said, the will. How much do they want to do it? And how much do they want to hurt? And I thought that was really interesting. um, Because in my own uh, experience, I find that you can have great talent, but not much ability to drive through adversity. And that psychological robustness underpins performance. So how does training develop? that psychological robustness. Um, is it going through periods of hard training that teaches you that you can do it? Or is it some innate quality that you have psychologically, uh, culturally, to overcome adversity? Uh, for me, I grew up in a Marine Corps family, a military family, and it, we were very, from a young age, taught you know if you get knocked down, you get back up. And so from a training perspective, you get beat up today, you go in tomorrow, and you do it again. But that—is it training? Is it innate? I don't
0: know. Well, Greg, that—I mean—I can't think of a better way of ending that podcast. Really, um, that was some—that was great. Thank you very much. Um, I think we're pretty much at the end here. I think um, maybe maybe just as a final point, I mean, where do you feel the research? Um, needs to go away or or if it is going that way where are we going with with the research in in this area
1: in in the periodization area sports science
0: yeah no 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 in periodization yeah
1: well i think the biggest problem with periodization research is that to get to the elite athletes and do true periodization studies is 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 kind of a very difficult thing Mm. Um, for example, there's always, you know, on, in Twitter, people calling out for do more sports science in American elite sports of, of gridiron and baseball and basketball. Well, if a coach isn't going to let me do periodization studies on those athletes, I'm not going to be able to do it. Yeah. You know, And if those athletes don't want to do it, I'm not going to be able to do it. So the problem becomes, can we get there? I don't know if we can. And that's why I have, you know, Mike Stone and I have talked about this inordinate amount of time. Some of the research from the old Soviet Union is far better research than we can ever do because those athletes didn't really have a choice. They were in those studies because they were in a communist country. And I'm not advocating communism for sports science.
0: Sure.
1: But what I'm suggesting is that some of the studies that need to be done, I'm not sure we can do them to the level that we need to do them uh, in the strength and conditioning sphere. Um, can we do work? Yes. Can we do monitoring work? Can we do retrospective studies? Yes. Can we try to make decisions about what that training intervention did? Yes, but we don't fundamentally have a control group or a, a comparison training group. You know, for example, you know getting a team to do one training model and the other half do a training model um, as a duty of care, I've got to make sure I believe that both training models will get those athletes prepared equally. Yeah. So can we really find a study that actually does it? I don't know. It's a problem that we struggle with, and we're really we're, we're working on it. I mean, we, we just started a study last semester on auto-regulatory periodization versus a more dogmatic, programmatic periodization. Um, it was going quite well, and then we had some issues where we had to, to pull the plug and we got to actually start again. Um, a holiday schedule got in our way a bit. Um, so we're, working, we're shaking out those issues. I think it gets more complex with team sports models, and I think we need a lot more research um, in these more parallel models of periodization where you're working multiple training factors at the same time. Um, I've become more interested in um, parallel but emphasis, meaning that we have different emphasis of parallel structures in sequential blocks. almost like a hybrid so it's not parallel or sequential but it's both because we know that for example let's use a a hockey player they need certain physical attributes that you have to maintain at some level all the time but can we vary the, the the focus of those training factors in different emphasis structures in a sequential pattern that keeps them prepared or moves them in a direction that's the kind of things that I'm interested in now. Um, you know I like block periodization, but you know for a team sport athlete, losing a training residual, that's problematic yeah. because then they could be at more risk for injury or more risk for reduced performance capacity. Um, so we're designing a few studies right now that are more mechanistic to kind of get a philosophical or mechanistic model to look at detraining effects and also cross-transfer effects, to look at how can we maintain these or how long these training residuals may last in an attribute and what can we do to maintain them. If we do it mechanistically, then we get an idea, okay, what might the structure look like, and then we can apply it to some sort of sporting scenario with athletes that have are trained, but I, I doubt we could ever get to the very, very elite
0: yeah no I I would agree with you and uh, actually I'm a big fan of uh, case study research and um published uh, <clears throat> a few studies and uh actually we 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 finished another one recently which is a um you'll be pleased to hear is a nutritional periodization study um on an elite triathlete and um we're uh, we're writing that up now and 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 that that's great because we're able to um mm-hmm you know, collect data, um okay, it's an N of one, but that's who we work with as clients, as yeah. athletes, is N of ones. But it's great to see the knowledge coming out and it's great to see more case studies coming out. I mean what what do you think of case studies?
1: Well I think with the very elite you have to kind of do case study because that's what you're you're looking at a very selective population. Um mm. you know if you look at, you know, for example Usain Bolt is Usain Bolt. He's he's an amazing athlete and there's not many people like him, so can you really have a group of people that are comparable? You know, who's the control group to, to Usain Bolt? Yeah. You're not going to find another Usain Bolt to kind of compare it to. So I actually like case studies and I'm interested in them with the very elite athletes. And um, Bill Sands did a talk a while ago about using case study modeling for elite sport and, and kind of looking at those kind of structures. And I think. That might be a very uh, powerful way to get to those elite levels. You know, build our foundation with mechanisms, then apply it to um, trained athletes to get an idea of what's going on, and then compare it to what elite, super elite athletes are doing. I'm actually very interested in your in your work with the nutrition periodization. Mm. I'm in the process of uh, finalizing my my next book on periodization. Um, I'm I'm, go- I'm going out on my own, and one of the key chapters that I want to put in is is the concept of nutrition periodization Mm. because i think um i think that's a really important component of the training process that we've kind of lost sight of um and i know a lot of athletes that probably have fallen down because they haven't taken care of the nutritional requirements um it could uh, not because they intentionally decided not to do it but maybe they you know they struggle with certain certain eating patterns and certain requirements and things of that nature. Sure. And how can we program nutrition into this global uh, holistic kind of structural plan? And I, I think that's a fascinating thing. And, and um, those case study type models gives us nice information to build from, I think, or to make um, hypotheses. I'm a big fan of David Bishop's paper on. Uh, sports science from you know hypothesis generating to application. Yeah. And I think that's a an important concept. And the case study model is where the application actually is, is to look at the application. We could work backwards from that. You know, what is this elite athlete doing? Okay, can we work backwards instead of just forwards? You know, can we get back to the to the raw hypothesis that underpins them? I don't know.
0: It's yeah. another way of looking at it. No, no, great, and you you just helped me create the summary to my thesis. <laughs> That's exactly. <You're> <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'll um I'll uh, I'll put a thanks to comrade uh, half at the end. <laughs> um, <clears throat> listen, um, I I you know there's obviously a lot we could talk about here. Oh, by the way, and David Bishop was um, on here a couple of episodes ago, and we did talk David. about periodization, and we we were largely talking about. Things like lactic uh, uh, acid and you know hydrogen ion accumulation, but the role that even things like uh, nutritional periodization can have with that. And I've explored this further um, as it relates to things like um, signaling with people like Keith Barr and uh, Lee yep. Hamilton and and the likes. Yep. But all folks have to do is is look at the catalogue. You'll see all those episodes there. But um, listen, look, we're out of time. Um, I really appreciate. You're coming on and, and having this discussion with us. Um, you know, one thing, uh, you know, a lot of people get into debates. These aren't arguments amongst academics or whatever. These are debates. Um, yeah. And I think that's an important thing. Sometimes people misunderstand that. Um, that's, that's the great thing. Like you say, going to a conference, there can be some great debates, uh, point counterpoint discussions, round tables. I mean, not everyone agrees. And that that's the great thing is to explore different ideas, differing views. Um, and that's how we learn, and 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 you know, I think I think if we all understand that it's a very new science that we're in, we know, we know very little really, um, and it's a very fluid science, isn't it? And it, and it's uh, it's going to be a very long time until we really have a grasp on on this stuff. Uh,
1: I think so. I think the, the interesting thing is, I think people forget how complex the human physiology and system is. It's it's it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I always tell people that periodization is a guarantee of nothing. It increases chances of success um, if done correctly. Um, I can't guarantee victory at the Olympics in Rio, but if I do my job well as a coach and I've planned accordingly and I've monitored accordingly and I've worked with the athlete accordingly, I increase my chances of success. And that's all we can really do. Absolutely. It's up to the athlete to do it on the day. Absolutely.
0: So listen, uh, thank you, Greg. Um, I've really enjoyed this. Um, I know folks will gain a lot from listening to this. Um, please do listen to episode 61 guys, um, for a a bit more background on periodization. Um, there's a lot to read. I highly recommend, um, the various works that are out there and I'll put them in the notes on this podcast. Um, if you fancy a big book, um, then the um, book uh, that you wrote with um, Tudor Bomper. Um, what what edition are you on now? On that,
1: I'm actually not doing the next edition of, of Tudor's book. He's got we've, he's got a different direction. Oh,
0: ah, okay, fine.
1: Uh, so I'm actually going out on my own. With uh, I'm working with a publishing house to kind of do my own thing over the next year. And, Brilliant. Um, I'm really excited about it because. Um, Tudor's very – I love Tudor. He's a great, amazing theorist of periodization um, from the old school, and I'm very much in, in, in enamored with the old ways. But for me, I've become more interested in the modern science and folding it in yes. to see how we can evolve the old ways to deal with the modern athlete. And I think when I can get my book done, I think that's going to be a primary goal is to expand upon the old ways and the classics to make them more modernized and kind of innovate them in
0: my own way. Sure. Well, I mean, it's the building blocks of knowledge, isn't it? Um, Yeah. um, So um, I'll put some links to things like your research gate and so on. Um, Mm. But I do know uh, you run an excellent program in strength and conditioning um, at Edith Cowan. Uh, How how can folks learn more about your program?
1: Oh, it's it's, our program is... uh, you know, we're partnered with the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association, so there's links from them to us. Um, you know, we can. You know, if anyone's really interested in our in our Masters program, you know, they can email me um, at ECU, and I'm easily found. Uh, you just you look for the program. It's the Masters of Exercise Science and Strength and Conditioning. Um, we do have. Uh, we'll be uh, having uh, information available for people at the UK SCA, NSCA, obviously the ASCA, because we sponsor their conference. Um, we try to be around the world, and, and myself, uh, Professor Newton, and Dr. Nympheus, we're all over the world, and, and we, we try to get out and try to get students to be excited about strength and conditioning. And um, you know, it's it's an amazing field that I think we're still in its infancy. Yeah. I don't think we know. I don't think we know nearly as much as we pretend to know at times. Um, I think every day I realize how much more things I need to learn. Um, about how the human physiology works and, and and how we might be able to better um, train athletes to be, you know, amazing at what they do. And and I think a lot of us sports scientists are ex-athletes who didn't achieve our goals, and we're hoping that the people that we work with will achieve the goals that we didn't.
0: Yeah, no, it is. It's exciting. I I, I love the more I do this, the more I I love it. Um, but listen, we're, we're out of time. Um, so oh. thank you once again. Um, for those that want to learn more about this podcast, um, just go to guruperformance.com and uh, you'll see both at our Human Performance Lab or our, our Institute. There's links to the podcast. If you want to learn more about performance nutrition, uh, we run the ISSN Diploma Postgraduate Program, which is both taught in London and also uh, available distance learning online. Um, which, by the way, is accredited for continuing education by the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Very pleased to say that. Um, but also, if you want to come study a master's degree with me um, at, in sport and exercise nutrition at Middlesex University, you can check that out. Otherwise, uh, encourage everyone um, to tune back into the next podcast, which I'll bring to you all very soon. Uh, thank you all for listening.